Hey, everybody, it's Pete, and uh, I am here just to remind you that we are still on our hiatus from the toaster, taking a little break before we kick off season nine, but that is happening in just a couple of weeks. This will be the last time you hear any of this hiatus nonsense from me as we dig into season nine. I'm so excited about some of the interviews we've got planned, some of the conversations ahead. In the meantime, check out this rebroadcast. This was a conversation with Sarah Armstrong, who was teaching us all about keeping kids at the very center of your divorce conversations and successful co-parenting. She's super smart, Sarah, and we were lucky to have her on the show and can't wait to bring you more in season nine. Thanks for hanging out, everybody. Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, what are you doing with your littlest toasters? Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. Today, we're talking about the kids. Sarah Armstrong is the author of The Mom's Guide to a Good Divorce, and she's here to talk to us about what it means to truly put the kids first in the divorce process. She's also VP of Global Marketing Operations at Google and serves as a mentor to other women in the business. Sarah, welcome to the toaster. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Pete, can I get a title like VP of Global Marketing Operations at Google? <laughs> Let me just assure you, I assure you, Seth, you haven't earned it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a simple no would have been nice. <laughs> a response from me isn't enough if I don't turn the shiv a little bit. Don't you think? I mean, haven't you learned that about me? Sarah, we're so glad to have you here and uh, to talk about this. Kick us off. What what made you a a good divorce advocate. What does that mean? And how are you that person? Yeah, interesting question. Well, first, uh, I think I start with I'm actually not an advocate for divorce. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, All right, let's so start sorry, sorry no, we have to close. Job. We have to close <laughs> the show right now. Yeah. It's a, see you next week because here at the toaster. No, no. And, and in fairness, because I think if couples can stay married and happily married, that is the goal, right? That is the goal in life. I, I, I start with, you know, no one gets married to get divorced. Right. And no one gets divorced for good reasons, unfortunately. But when children are involved, um, the stakes are high. And so the way I became this kind of good divorce proponent is I went through a divorce and I had watched really ugly divorces growing up. Um, my parents actually have been married for 54 years and are one of the happily, one of the most happily married couples I know. But I watched a lot of ugly divorces. So when I got to the point where that was what I was going to be going through, um, my ex-husband and or soon to be ex-husband and I talked about the way we would want to go through this because our daughter Grace, who was seven at the time, was the most important thing to both of us. And so we went through the process. Um, we uh, took a specific way of going through this divorce. And then over the years, interestingly enough, I had a number of friends that would come to me and say to me, will you help me through my divorce? I've decided to do this. And you did it, you know, you had this good divorce. And so I, um, you know, help them through the process. And at the end of helping these different women, they would say, you should really write this stuff down. 
And I'd, and I'd like, laugh like and more go, than just like uh, on post-it notes. And, and, and yeah, you, exactly. You, you exactly. slowly get suckered into writing a book. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that, that's that how was, this I stuff mean, happens. <laughs> that's, I mean, that was the crazy part is I never, I mean, as you said, I was, I'm in marketing and I never fashioned myself a writer or an author. Um, and so I was actually, the, the, the way the story goes, I was at a business dinner in Latin America with a group of Latin men, in fact, and a colleague of mine a, turned a, to As me, you do when you're in Latin America. I was in Sweden. In, in I was Latin in America, Sweden. they just call them men. <laughs> I was going to say, in well, Sweden, I was at dinner with Latin American people. Like, how does this work? <laughs> there, it's okay. <laughs> and in having dinner with all of them, I, um, I had a friend of mine turn to me and he said, a colleague of mine say, Sarah, you're so happy. And I said, yeah. He goes, and he said, but you're divorced. And I said, what? you know, yeah. And I said, well, getting divorced is not a death sentence. My ex-husband and I just decided to no longer be married to each other. And yes, I'm happy. My ex-husband's happy. Grace, our daughter's really happy. I said, it is possible to be happy and divorced. So it's just an interesting, so to, to highlight, I, I said to him at that point, you know, people think I should really write down the approach I've taken. He goes, you really should. So the next morning I got on my flight out of Mexico City and, and opened my laptop and wrote that um, this book is written by a girl who never ever thought she would get a divorce, who got a divorce and what she learned along the way. And that's how this whole journey started. Was your own divorce, and uh, would you? how would you classify it? Was it a, a pretty one, an ugly one? How did it end up? You know what? Um, interestingly enough, my divorce, I would absolutely classify it as a good divorce. And I didn't classify it that way. Grace did it at age eight. So a year, huh. a the year after, our, yeah, the right. of, a year after our divorce, uh, we were standing at a CVS, checking out, and there was a People magazine on the stand, newsstand, and um, it had a celebrity couple getting divorced. And she looked to me and she was, "Mommy, is that a good divorce or a bad divorce?" And I said, "Grace, I don't know. What's the difference between a good divorce and a bad divorce?" She goes, "Well, good divorce is when the mommy and daddy are nice to each other, like you and daddy, and a bad divorce is when they scream and yell at each other." Oh, it makes my throat seize up. It's so beautiful. Kids get it, right? They get, We've talked they about see this. Everything. Yeah. They see it, they get it, they understand it, they watch everything you do at age seven. And then a year later, brings it back. Yeah. Right? That's She's awesome. the one that called, she is literally the one that called it a good divorce. And hence how I landed with that as part of the. And so, how much is she asking for royalties on this book? Yeah, right. She, she gets a sniff <laughs> off of every sale, right? Yeah, well, she's, she, is, she is referenced throughout. And in fairness, I gave it to her at age 12 when I finally wrote the book. I gave it to her. I said, You need to read this and make sure that you're comfortable with what mom's sharing about our, our you, you know, your dad and my approach to our divorce and, and your, the impact it's had on you. Because I wanted to make sure she'd be comfortable with how we represented it. And she wrote, she read, I left her alone. She read it and she came back and said, mom, I think this is going to really help families that are going through this. Okay. So I've got a lot of kids that I love, but I'm looking to adopt your child. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's pretty amazing. She's yeah. pretty amazing Seth. I have she, to say. Is she, is, in, is she in college now or? She is. She's a freshman. She's uh, just finished her freshman year. Is she and- on scholarship? No. Okay. You know, great maybe maybe I won't she, adopt your child. She, she, is an, she is an academic scholarship. Yeah, she oh, okay. did earn okay. that, and she's a she's a sharp one. But yeah, she's a great. She's an amazing. I feel so fortunate to raise Grace, and actually, in fairness, with my ex husband, we co parented her, and um, she's just a special. She's a special kid. That's awesome. 
All right. So let's let's dig just a little bit more into the constituent elements of a good divorce. What are the things you put into play to to actually make sure that you're doing the things that are going to land you at CVS staring at a People magazine uh, and uh, talking about how great your divorce was? The fundamental aspect of a good divorce is that a couple that's gone through divorce puts aside their their personal feelings for one another and really focuses on what's best for their children. Like that's the fundamental underlying kind of mindset and principle that I think everyone has to enter into for this to take place. And that's not easy. Well, I was just going to say that that is counter, I think, to your uh, base sort of human instincts in entering into any sort of conflict agreement, right? Completely, completely. But here's the thing. I mean, when a couple goes through divorce, right, and children are involved, the stakes are high. Right. If if you don't have children, in fairness, it's a breakup, in my view. Like it's yeah, with you know, with, with up, paperwork with lawyers. With, but yeah, right, I hear paperwork, you. lawyers, <laughs> and you know some financial considerations. But you know, it's a breakup. A breakup um, with more you, signatures. Yeah. <laughs> but when the kids, are, when you have these children involved, you know, we owe it to them to ensure that they're not collateral damage due to this divorce. And so, you know, I, I talk about you know, you get married and you decide you no longer would want to be married to each other. But we made a commitment in having a child that we were going to bring her up in the healthiest, happiest environment possible. And, you know, I, I, I joke, but say in all seriousness, like we cover the plugs, you know, we make sure that they wear bike helmets. We ensure they drink organic milk, like all these things to make sure they're safe and happy, happy and healthy. And then when you go through a divorce, you know, we can put them in one of the most toxic environments. <laughs> you go through point. the divorce, you're like, lick this live wire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, seriously, right? Let's let's put you in a toxic environment, a dangerous environment for you mentally and emotionally. And I think it's up to us to say as parents, you know, what is, and it is, it's, it's taking a high road that is very hard to do. It's super hard because it's not the, I mean, to your point earlier, Pete, it's not the natural inclination in the world of divorce um, to take that high road and set aside what you're feeling and put your children first. And I I fundamentally think that's what couples lose sight of. And that's why the concept of a good divorce is, I mean, it's really crazy with using that term. I don't think there's enough conversation in society about the concept of a good divorce, right? It's always the, the negativity that comes with it, you know? And so I just, I would love for societal perception to change over the course of time so that a good divorce is actually an attainable outcome. We did a show on um, English divorce, English law, and, and how divorce is handled across the pond. And one of the most interesting outcomes of that is the way a divorce is uh, the the legal dissolution of the relationship is completely separated. The expectation of how you handle your familial separation and emotional breakup is on you, and that's culturally accepted. That it seems to be that's a good divorce. Like we're we're going to grow up as a society, and we're going to have certain expectations of how we handle our relationships with our children through love and communication, and. Uh, then here uh, Seth gets involved. See, Pete always brings it back to the big, bad, mean divorce attorney. (laughs) (laughs) Pete, I don't know how many times I have to tell you, brother, I don't build them, I just fly them, right? right? And I try (laughs) to land these turbulent planes and we we go from there. But to Sarah's point and about changing societal shifts, that happens one divorce at a time, right? Yes. And, and, And as much 
respect that people show me and tell me, oh my God, Seth, you get along with your former spouse. You got your kid's amazing. You, you both are bonded with him. You go to events together. You save seats for each other. You have now new step parents involved and role models involved in his life. And it just seems so easy. Like so many re- people respect us so much for that. And then they, in their own divorces, don't do it, which blows my mind. Like you're sitting here complimenting me, which thank you very much for the compliment. I've always done this for my child. My former spouse has always done this for her child. We weren't looking to get compliments, but they literally will say it and then they don't do it. Right. Right. And it blows my mind. And I'm like, I get that it takes two. However, you can minimize conflict just by where you sit. And I, and I know you, you, you call this minimizing the gaps, Sarah. Explain that. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's, can I build on one thought that you just said? Because the thing sure. that I have a similar um, situation is I've had people that have marveled at, gosh, you have such a good divorce. And they'll say, I know one other couple right. that has a good divorce. There's like, always really? that one other couple. You know, though, I know. And yeah. I think yeah. oh, what, just one. The damn Joneses. Then, I don't like them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> trying to one-up but, us. We're going to be nicer to each other. It is because we resent that sort of kindness in a process when we can't find it ourselves. Right. There, and so there's this like, you know, I know one of the couple and I said, God, isn't it? That's, I, I always say, it's so great. You know, one of the couple, wouldn't it be great if that was the norm? Like that you could say that the couples that unfortunately have to go through divorce, that they they actually ended up in a, in a good place. Everyone's, you know, in a, in a good place. So I just think that the, the point Seth made about people acknowledging it and really paying tribute to it in some way and saying, gosh, that's great. But then if it does come around to their specific situation, it's not always the path they follow. And so I just, again, that's a really interesting one. Um, Now, in terms of minimizing the gaps, um, interestingly enough, that was specifically addressing the, the physical impact that divorce has on children and their actual physical environment. And so one of the things that I found in in our situation is I was going to stay in the home that we had raised Grace in and my ex-husband was moving to another place. And I didn't want it to feel like her world was being pulled apart physically, like the physical environment. And so I did, we did everything we could so that if there was, you know, a painting coming off the wall, there was a mirror, it might not be a painting, but there was a mirror being put up or there was, you know, the, 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 the holes that could be created through the, the fact that we were divvying up you know, household items and goods were, were, was not going to be such a visible representation. We did a show on this with Jamie Blumenthal, an interior designer yeah, who came on design. and said, and talked about, Hey, half the stuff just moved to the other house. How do you not make it feel empty? What do you do to fill the gaps? Creates a like, lot yes, of holes. Yeah. And, and yeah. actually the crazy, crazy part for us is we had a long hallway of black and white family photos. So it was a mix of my ex-husband and my family. And it was this beautiful, I mean, it's a project I'd done years before. And I was so proud of like this really beautiful montage of our lives. And when we were going through divorce, I thought, well, I need to give him his black and white photos. So I took the time this is, was quite a project to get other photos framed, like in new frames. So, so I sent Grace down the street for a play date. Again, she was seven. And I took the time to take those photos off, put them in a box, put new photos up. And then she came back, you know, two hours later and I'm in the kitchen and I hear this voice out of the hallway say, Hey mom, I go, what's that Grace? She said, the wall has changed. And I stopped in my tracks 
And I said, well, what's changed? She said, there are more pictures of me up there. It looks great. And she ran up to her room. Okay, because as you started that story, my stomach started to hurt because I was very nervous with the direction that could turn. No, Did exactly. you just break your daughter? No, That's no, fantastic. And, well, and the crazy part was, Pete, is that if I had not taken the time to put other photos up there and I'd left those little hangers, right? Years later, Grace would be in therapy, telling the therapist, my parents got a divorce. My mom took all of my dad's family photos off the wall and she left those little hangers. Yeah. And emptiness. And another nugget here that is so slight and nuanced, I want to point out, you put more photos of her up. Kids are self-centered as they should be. (laughs) Right. At age seven, (laughs) it's hard to teach empathy. We work hard on it. There's a bigger world out there. It's not always about you. Right. But in this situation, it is about them. How is this impacting their lives? And she's like, Wow, I got more photos of me. I don't give a <laughs> shit that dad's not in the photo. <laughs> it didn't it didn't occur to her. No. Nope, right? It nor, didn't it nor didn't even occur it. to her. Right. No. It, exactly. Now, on the photo bit, I will tell you in a credit to my former spouse, when we were dating, I took a picture of myself doing a headstand on a piece of furniture when we weren't living in the same city. And um I sent it to her just being silly or whatever. And we, she got it framed and she had it up. And when we got divorced, she took that picture and put it in my son's room. And there was always a picture of me. And I think it's still, he's 18 now and we got divorced when he was two. So I think that picture has been in his room for 16 years. And there's always any picture you always want of his mom or his sister, anybody, grandma, uh, it's your room, man. You want to put it up in the living room? That's fine with me too. You know, like, so pictures are powerful. They are powerful. And actually in Grace's room, similar, we had a wall of family photos and those all stayed up after the divorce. So her grandparents, her aunt and uncle on her dad's side. I thought you were going to tell me in in, uh, Grace's room, you had that same picture of me. (laughs) (laughs) You said your head, your your ex-wife. How would you have it? I have it right here above my monitor. Yeah. But but, but we did the same thing. And to this day, till we, we just moved um, out of Atlanta and they were up until she was 18. Yeah. From seven to 18. Yeah. and, And that's powerful. I think, and I don't think we've talked about this Pete before that I recall is that, Having pictures up of your former spouse with your child is powerful. It's accepted. Like, I get it. His dad, his mom, whatever the case may be. So, little nugget. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Pete, it's back to school season. It's coming up. It can be difficult, as you know, for anyone going through a divorce. Let's be honest. Back to school is difficult for everybody. It's just heightened when you're going through a divorce. And it's especially true if we're dealing with some parents that might be suffering from alcoholism or if you're just being accused of overindulging and the kid's safety is always first. Well, that's why, you know, how to split a toaster, we're all about uh, saving your relationships through the divorce process. We want to make sure that it is even that everybody in, in the divorce process is cared for. And sometimes you just need data. Uh, in in order to help make that case. And that's why we have partnered with Soberlink to help offer resources to help you navigate this upcoming back-to-school season. So Soberlink's a remote alcohol monitoring technology. It's created to help prove your sobriety in custody cases. That's how you have to view this. View it as, I can get independent third-party verification 
that I'm not drinking and therefore the kids are safe and therefore I can spend quality time with my kids. It's a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition. It allows you to send and the other party to receive real-time updates to monitor you at any time, anywhere, allowing for swift intervention if you slip up and you have a drink when you shouldn't be. They've helped hundreds of thousands of people document and prove their sobriety in real time for peace of mind in child custody cases. Soberlink is currently offering a free back to school and divorce packet. It includes a Q&A with a top divorce attorney, back to school checklist, communication tips and more. And you can get it. Uh, you know, I, given our guest today, I would love to be able to just say Google it, but I'm going to even save you that trouble. You don't even have to just Google it. I'm just going to tell you where to go. Soberlink.com slash toaster. That's www.soberlink.com slash toaster. Download your back to school and divorce packet today and uh, check out Soberlink. They help a lot of people. Maybe they'll help you too. Our great thanks to Soberlink for being a sponsor of How to Split a Toaster. Let's dig into some more uh, routines that, that make solid sense for keeping your kids saying this is great and not I miss the other house. I miss being at dad's house. What? How did you go about crafting the routines to support Grace? No, it's a great question. So one of the hardest moments I'd say of our early conversations around the divorce was we sat down with the child specialist right before we told Grace and he looked at me and he said, Sarah, do you travel? And I said, yeah, I travel internationally for my job. And he looked at my ex-husband and said, do you travel? And he said, yeah, I travel domestically. He said, well, Grace is about to become a professional traveler for the next 11 years until she heads off to college. And honestly, I burst into tears. I mean, because he said she's going to pack a bag every week. And, and I just was like, oh. And so we left that session. And I sat, we sat down afterwards. And I said to my ex-husband, I said, I want to do everything we can to minimize the feeling that Grace is going to have that she's a professional traveler. And I'm not sure what that looks like yet. We need to think about it, but this is so important. Like it's so, because, you know, she's not the one that wanted to choose to move between two homes every week, right? That's, that is not something she chose. So we went through, and, and again, there's some socioeconomic considerations here, but we did take the, make the effort to make sure she had all the fundamentals of the clothes in both homes. So when she headed off to school and would, you know, end up going to dad's house or mom's house afterwards, she wasn't having to think about the bag she was supposed to carry on top of her, her backpack. So she just showed up at the house and the things now special items, you know, a pair of dress shoes, uh, you know, the things that you might only buy one of, we'd have to figure out how those got to where they needed to be. But the fundamentals of life that allowed her to kind of not have that be the sentiment every week was so important. And so we we took that as a, a very serious part of our um, kind of commitment to her of her living across two homes and how could we ease that. So if things got out of balance and there were too many socks at one house, it wasn't up to Grace to figure that out. Okay. I was just thinking that because I had the same situation with Kai. How do too many socks get to one house? Yeah. I mean, literally, <laughs> I would call my former spouse and say, I only have two pairs of shorts here. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure every time he came home from school, he was wearing shorts. It's like, I, I do not know how that physically happens, but it does. 
I agree. I agree. So Seth, I called it a rebalancing. So we do rebalancing. Yes. Oh my and God. on a given Sunday, whoever was bringing, you know, grace to the other's house would rebalance and bring the extra. You're yeah. right. It was always, it was always the socks. I mean, there's just, yeah, it was just a, a weird. Like I totally get it. If I end up with, you know, when kids are little, they have their school uniforms, whatever, blue yes. shirt or white shirt. Yeah. And I get yeah. it. If I end up with 10 blue shirts and the 10, yeah dirty white shirts end up at mom's house. Right. But how do I end up with 18 shirts? <laughs> like, I, 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 to this day, it is a mystery to me. So, But I appreciate what you're saying about those special items because when Kai was little, two and a half going back and forth, shoved in the bottom of his backpack was his blanket. Right. Right? Yeah. And this is like one of the best things I think about his childhood is when he got his little blanket as a baby and his older sister, who was six, and his mother wanted to name the blanket, it was all of these very, what I would associate with girly names, right? And they, I'm like, this is a boy. Like, you can't name this thing, you know, flower, flowy or something, right? And so I called it, I, call, I don't even know girly names anymore, Pete. It's been so long. That, that's but, obvious. Yeah. yeah, thank you. But I named it Girlfriend. I said, it's his girlfriend, and it stuck. <laughs> Are and you serious? I'm not making this up. It stuck. <laughs> and so literally, we would say, where's girlfriend? And so now that he's 18, and he actually has a girlfriend, I get to say shit like, you're not his first girlfriend. <laughs> you know? And, and I want to let you know, he was sleeping with his girlfriend for a lot of years. <laughs> You know? <laughs> he treated his first girlfriend very well. Very well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and he would that cry. He, he would cry when we put her in the washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is gruesome parental humor. Gruesome. I, I have a question for both of you that I don't think I've ever I, I don't think I've ever thought about. And maybe I should have. Uh, starting uh, Sarah, I'll let you start. How do you think the 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 experience that grace had going back and forth has impacted her in her ability to adapt to change have you noticed anything that uh, uh, about her her personality absolutely yeah i think any child and i know grace i can say cuz we've discussed it i mean i think they become very adaptive to new environments or into settling in and making a place feel comfortable um, because of the back and forth nature of, of her, you know, of her life. And so I think the adaptive nature for sure, you know, the, the, the one interesting reflection, she never once in the, you know, 11 years that she went back and forth, never once complained, never once said, you know, I don't want to do this or you know, those things. But as she was packing for college, one night she came home and she had to, you know, she had stuff at dad's house and my house and trying to figure out all that she was yeah. going to pack. And she said, mom, I'm calling this the great consolidation. That's right. Hmm. And I go, why is that? She goes, it's going to be the first time in my life in 11 years where all my stuff is in one place. Wow. Yep. Mm. I totally get that. I totally get and that. I, right. And I just, I said to her, Grace, I said, I'm so happy you get to do the great consolidation because you have done an amazing job. That's right. Of going back and forth between dad's house and my house for 11 years. And you have never once complained or given us a hard time. You've, you've gone out with, and, but you know, Sarah, did you follow it, it up with good good luck fitting it in your dorm room? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that reality came later. So yeah, I, exactly. I, I didn't want to break it all to her in one, one fell swoop. Yeah, that the, let the, the sweetness live on yeah. for just a minute. <laughs> I think, Pete, to your point, there's another side to adapting to change, and it's logistics. I, I, as much and as impressive as Sarah is and everything she's done in her life and being at Google, I always would joke that Kai is going to run UPS because this kid knows logistics. He knows how to get his stuff back and forth and where to go. And in, he got in, in, out of all the thousands of parenting plans that I've helped people do, no one has ever once done the crazy parenting plan that Kai had because Kai had an older half sister who would go to her dad's. And so he was coming to mine. So we organized this plan where sometimes the kids would be together at mom's and sometimes they had one-on-one time. And that created what would look like a very imbalanced, crazy schedule on paper. But when you realize there were other factors, it made sense, right? And then Kai, when he was little, would come home and say, it'd be like the third week, second week of school. And he's in third grade, kindergarten, first, whatever. He goes, dad figured it out. I'm like, figured what out? He goes, I got the whole routine. I'm like, what routine, buddy? You got your classes, you got your folder, you're going on. He's like, no. He's like, the teachers, they start in the lunchroom on Monday. Then they go to car line on Tuesday. And then oh, they wow. get a break. And then they're out on recess on, on, on Thursday because they get a break on. Like, he knew where they all were in their rotations. And he would just look at logistics like that and map them out in his head because he was constantly on this crazy routine, I thought, going back and forth. And he can do it to this day. And I'm convinced when he's running you UPS, I'm going to say it's because I got divorced. <laughs> it's either UPS or a serial killer set. That's kind of some stalker material, I think, that yeah. we need to well, worry about. Trust Guy. Me, if, if he's whacking anyone, I'm going first. So you'll know. Pete. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so does Grace do something similar? Is she good at knowing where everything's going, where it's going, how she it's do, going? She does. She Honestly, the, the ability to kind of maneuver um, the day and figure out where she needs to be and the things she needed. And, and it, yeah, it's, it is very much, I would agree. I hadn't thought about it in that way from it, but I think logistics to your point, there's, there's so many fundamental day-to-day logistics of life that co-parenting you already have if you're in one house. And when you go across two homes and have to figure out how all that's going to work without it making everyone crazy is it, 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 it does take some effort. And I think parenting plans, as you mentioned, are really fundamental piece of the puzzle to put as much in that parenting plan as possible that helps avoid the debates of some of those logistics that can get interesting um, down the road. I want to turn the conversation to you and your former spouse, uh, because you you both said you travel internationally, domestically, you travel, and now you're traveling in a split household. Insights that you have gleaned from making that work. Yeah. No, I, well, I think a couple of things. Um, one is we were supportive of each other's careers and the fact that, you know, travel was part of it. And so if one of us had to be out of the country or out of town, then the other would 
take grace. And so we had that understanding within our parenting plan that that was the first, that was the first option. But if for some reason the person couldn't take her, then we had, we always had a nanny in our lives. I always say it, it takes a village to raise a child and we, we didn't have family nearby. So we really had a fundamental need to have a nanny that was always partnering with us to raise grace. And so that, and that nanny would be able to stay overnight if needed, but we always started with the option of the other one taking her and, you know, kind of first red refusal per se. And and that's the legal term for what makes common sense, right? A first refusal, right? Yes. I'm going out of town. I'm unavailable. Oh, would you like to spend time with our child before I like give them to somebody else? And people, people will argue about this forever, Pete. Is it like, you mean the, the couple, the splitting couple, right? First refusal. Yep. How many hours are you going to be gone? No, I I don't want to have a right of first refusal. If it's, four hours. I want it to be 10 hours. I'm like, okay, but you're not there. If you're not there, wouldn't you want... Why does it matter? Right. It it matters. Yeah. It matters. But wouldn't you want your child with the other parent if that's an option? Like I always say, like for the betterment of the child, I mean, the, you know, putting them first again is... Is that foundational principle? And then they say, well, no, yeah. because, you know, I want my grandparents, the grandparents to see them. I'm like, I get it. But in a divorce, your best day is you get 50%. So if the other parent's unavailable, you should get more time with your kid. Yeah. And I'm not saying Absolutely. the kid never gets to do a sleepover. No. Or, yeah. you know, they get to be kids. So anyway. No, I think it is. It's a really, the fact that people, to your point, Seth, debate those is, is hard to here because I think those are again so foundational to to having a a place where your kids are or are put first in the conversation. So all right, uh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Seth, no, 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 you, no, you're no. highlighting things in our note. I know there's a very important one that means well. This means one's just to always big to me, and I actually just recently got a call from a judge about this. That's why I want to hit on this one, Pete. Is that you sit together at activities because your kids deserve to show the show of support from both parents? Yes. Yes. So, gosh. Um, So, Seth, when you were mentioning people admiring how you approach your divorce and, you know, one of the things we would, people would always say to us is it was amazing to see that we always went to Grace's soccer game and stood next to each other on the sidelines or sat next to each other at a school event. And so, again, that was something we thought was really important is that if she's sitting out, you know, on the field or at an event and looking out, looking for us, that she's seen both of her parents there smiling back at her. Because that's what that's what she deserves, you know. But the interesting moment we had when she was in sixth grade is we went to a parent teacher conference, and we went in, and it was uh, my ex husband and myself and Grace and the teacher, and we went through about an hour discussion about how Grace was doing in school. And at the end of the discussion, the teacher stopped and she looked at us and she said, "Are you two divorced?" And I, I said, "Well, yes, we've been divorced since Grace was in first grade." She said, "I had no idea." And I looked at her and said, it, it didn't occur to us to tell you. I mean, that's not something we would walk and say, oh, by the way, we're divorced. Can we now talk about Grace's education? And It's, a, it's, a, um, it's an odd opening for yeah, exactly like, conference. Yeah. And, and so she said, you would not believe how few parents and divorced couples can come into this office and sit down and talk about their children's education for an hour. It is so infrequent and it makes me so sad. And I, I acknowledged her, I said, that makes me really sad too. And by the way, Grace is hearing this whole discussion. And, but it was a moment and she, she goes, I just wish other couples that are divorced would see how important it is to come in and sit here for an hour and talk about their child and how they're doing in school. 
So it was just one of those moments of reflection of we, we've always decided that we would show up together for those moments where grace deserved for us to be there together. That's lovely. That's you're looking lovely. like you're in awe. Yeah. And I, to that point, it all starts, right? When you're at all these other events and you're at the field and that's what it, a judge recently called me and said, Hey, I was listening to the podcast and it helped me settle this case. And I said, what do you mean? One, I didn't even know he listened to it. And, and what self-respecting even, judge is listening to this show? I know, really? exactly. <laughs> Let me tell you, um, they got enough to do. Um, <laughs> but he said it was all about sitting together or sitting, if you're in that much conflict, you sit in the same line. Like if you're five rows back, but you're visually in the same line. So when your child looks up at you, they can see both of you and they don't have to pick which parent they look to, right? Yes. And they don't yes. have to you know, go to two parent-teacher conferences and listen to the same thing twice. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so, I, I, it, again, these are fundamental decisions you have to make as a couple that are hard, by the way. It goes back to the high road. I mean, you probably don't, wouldn't choose to sit next to your ex-spouse, right? That's not, that wouldn't be your first choice. But it, at these moments, it isn't about our first choice. It's about what is best for I would choose to. She's very nice. No, I don't think she wants to sit next to me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but you just never know. And, there, you know there's, and there's a lot of emotion. Um, but I just think if, if it can be done, um, I think it's one of the best things you can do to show your children that you're there for them. I, can I ask a question about you? Yes. Uh, sure. How do you do it? Um, I, you know, I, I we we have so many uh, uh, conversations about you know how we deal with kids and how we deal with separation. And here you are in a position at an ex- as an executive at a, a global concern, and you travel internationally. And uh, at some point, this whole the 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 uh, sort of aesthetic of the working mom has got to have been a challenge. And I'm, I would love to hear you comment a little bit about how you uh, help other women in business, women executives, uh, you know, divorce moms navigate these particular waters. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a thank you for asking the question. I, you know, I think it's interesting because growing up, I always knew I wanted to be in business and I always knew I wanted to have a family. Like I, I knew I wanted to do both. I knew I wanted to have a career. And like the circus was out. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> is that not one yeah, of them? Yeah, circus. Yeah, I wasn't right. going to make the circus. I wasn't going to make the circus. Um, I, I played. I played volleyball in college. I right. would have loved to have played pro volleyball. But that's the, the, and I and I wanted uh, to travel. Like yeah. the circus was really it for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and so, but it is interesting because going from the mental model of being a working mom in a in a married household to going. Th- to becoming a single working mom and still having the, both the aspirations of being a mom that's there for your child, but also, you know, juggling a career. And in this instance, a clear that it was global in nature. It, it was definitely a lot to think through, but I was very fortunate a to, to have a ton of uh, support. And I will say my ex-husband was very supportive. We, we were supportive of, of each other doing what we could in our careers, both during our marriage, in fairness, and, and after. And I, I feel very fortunate that we were in that situation. But in terms of helping other women think through this, I always, I, I call it the, the juggling act of, of being a working mom and a working parent, because it, it, there's many fathers that do this too. And, you know, the juggling act becomes much more complex um, when you go through divorce and you go into that single uh, single nature. And so you really have to think about 
what's important to you and how you're structuring your day and how you're prioritizing. And, you know, it, you're already doing that once you have a child and then you go into that single nature of the working mom's juggling act and you get incredibly good at prioritizing and incredibly good at making decisions that are a going to be best for your child and for you. And then honestly, other things might need to fall by the wayside while you focus on, you know, your kids and yourself and, and the career, but it's, it's, um, it is a lot, but it is doable. I really believe it's doable. And I've, I've had many conversations with women around the world on this topic. And I think that um, women realizing that they can, have their career and raise their children. And even in a divorce situation is a really important thing that I'd want women to, to know. Now, you've had the benefit of having these conversations around the world. Are there different cultural aspects to divorce and how it gets viewed and how things play out in different societies that you've had the um, opportunity to experience or witness? Yes, I'd say the the observation. First of all, there's a lot of universal truths to divorce, regardless of where they take place. So I am finding that first and foremost, where there's you know the the there's some nuances culturally, but the fundamental things that we're challenged with, whether we're in the U.S., whether we're in Australia, whether we're in South Africa, whether we're you know in the U.K. or India. I mean, there's there's Pete, definitely that's typically where I travel to go to court. She just hit the top five. Yeah, just I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, your freak acquired. It. Right. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But, but the interesting thing is there's a lot of universal truths. And actually, I'm in the process of having my book translated into as many, many languages as possible because I think the guidance is universal and could be applied in, in whatever culture you're living in. Um, but there are, again, to your point, there's laws and there's things that are in the more legal realm that are maybe more of the nuances of the divorce process. But the things I'm talking about in terms of raising your children in a divorce situation, you know, with a, with a co-parent, um, I think that most of those I've found to be fairly universal. And we talk about co-parenting, traveling, prioritizing. Have you or your former spouse brought any new people into your lives? And and how do you fold that in? How did you have those conversations and and with Grace and with your former spouse? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So yes, we both have been in long-term relationships since our divorce. Um, and you know, I think we've taken slightly different paths of how we've integrated or not integrated um, those individuals into our day-to-day lives. Um, but I think in both instances, we've been very open with Grace about the relationship, um, what it means, where she fits into that, and how we're looking to kind of live our lives um, longer term. And she's, I think, seen the benefit of seeing both of her parents really happy in their respective relationships and actually having a healthy, you know, again, co-parenting relationship. So I, I feel like she's kind of been able to acknowledge and understand that, you know, again, her parents are happy with who they're with now. And, um, but she also sees us interacting in a healthy manner with each other. And so that part, um, I think is, uh, every divorce and every post-divorce scenario is very different when it comes to those situations and relationships, but I think it's for you to figure out what works for you and your kids in those instances. It's fascinating. And I, I think a real gift that, um, you know, she's been able to uh, adapt and and it sounds like see this as sort of a curse of riches, that there are more people in her life to to that that she can adapt to. I, I imagine, uh, you know, we've we've talked about uh, tough kid relationships before on the show that that it's not always easy. Uh, but but it sounds like a good divorce puts that first too. 
that puts that first two absolutely. And in my ex-husband's instance, the woman he's been with has a son who's actually very much close to Grace's age, and they've almost grown up as siblings, even though they did not actually technically get married and have that formal um, formal structure. But it, it's almost like having a brother, and she had uh, she had always wanted another sibling. So I'm like, and now you have one. So I mean, right. but those. Right. So I think that I did not that have to welcome. birth. Thank your father. Exactly. And so I think that you're right. I think we've tried to take the positives, you know, of of these situations and make them again. I don't think any of us, I can tell you, I I know this for for a fact for myself. I never, ever imagined getting divorced. It was not something that I envisioned happening in my life. Um, And so in, in, in having grace, having to go through all that we went through to figure out how to do this, there was just a lot of conscious decisions we made and a lot of conversation we had to to think through of how we wanted to do this um, with her as the focus. So now you make this sound easy. And so, and Grace has done this amazing, you know, she's adjusted well, she never complained. So one, was it that easy? And two, what happens if a kid doesn't do well with change? Like, did you have to battle those things or did you make some mistakes that then you learn from that maybe one of our listeners would be like, oh shit, I didn't know that was a mistake I'm making. Absolutely. So yeah. So first of all, it's not easy. And I know I can make it sound easy because of where we are, you know, 12 years post-divorce now, but the effort and the, um, the mental and emotional and physical energy it takes to do this, it, 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 does, it, it does take effort that is above and beyond what you probably would think. And so it's not an easy thing, but it is a worthwhile effort. And I'd say, at least from my standpoint, I would do it all over again in the way that we did it because of where I think we've collectively landed as a family. Now, interestingly, when you say, have you, there's definitely things I do differently. And one of the early moments was when Grace and I went on a, a spring break vacation together. And she was eight or nine years old. It was a year or two after. And it's after she'd acknowledged us having a good divorce, but we're sitting looking at a a family that was at another table. And she goes, that's a real family. And I looked at her, I said, well, we're a real family. And she said, I said, Grace, we're a real family. She's like, no, we're not. She's like, we don't have a mommy and a daddy and a sister and a brother. And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> and to your point earlier, I'm like, well, I'm not sure you're going to have a brother, but okay. Uh, but she, but she said that you know we weren't a real family, and so I went back, and that child specialist I mentioned earlier was someone I still kind of tapped into on in moments when I felt mm-hmm. like, oh, I might need some coaching here, and I replayed the scenario and I said to him what I had said to her and he goes, you should not have told her she was wrong. That is, that was her perspective and that's what she was seeing. And that was her reality of what she saw as a family structure at that moment. He's like, she will learn over the course of time that there's different family structures. And especially in this day and age, like things have evolved a lot, but you know, that was her, that was her reflection. and, And she was right in feeling that and articulating that to you. And it wasn't your place to tell her, you know, she was wrong and that that wasn't true. And so it was just a really interesting moment because it hurt me. Like I was, you know, and then that was a moment where the emotional side of me wants to defend where we are. Oh, right. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hey, look at what the, you know, mom and dad don't live in the same house. We give you all this love. Look at how fortunate you are with everything that we have socioeconomically. It's like, you just start piling on all the good things you're doing. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. right. But at the end of it, that was her perception and that was real for her. And that's what she saw as a real family. And so regardless of what I was going to tell her at that moment is his point was, regardless of what you said, it wasn't going to register because that was what she saw. And that was right, what she was. That's what's in the books. 
Right. Yes. So I had a similar experience, but it has this twist to it, which just broke my heart. Kai was two and a half. And when we split up and from his entire life, his sister would always go to her dad's house. And then he would come to my house. And so this was normal. Not having your parents live in the same house to him was normal. And we had some friends that lived in the same condo complex and they were married. They had children close to Kai's age and um, we would hang out with them. And I'll never forget it. He was in his car seat strapped in and we're driving and he asked me, why do these children's parents live in the same house? And I said, because they're married. And he says, well, are you and mommy ever going to be married? And I said, no, we were married, but we thought it was better to not be married and live in separate houses. And a huge crocodile tear came down his cheek. And I felt like the worst parent ever. And then that night I put him to bed and he talks to his mom every night when he's with me. I put him to bed and I called her back and I said, I want to tell you what happened today. Here's how I handled it. Explain that we still both love him and all this stuff. And I don't remember exactly what she said other than also being heartbroken and then followed it up with something because she's very funny. Like, glad that was on your watch. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> like, I feel horrible hearing this story. You handled it yeah. as best you could. Thank you for calling. And God, I'm glad I didn't. Like, but it, it's very similar, right? Like, she always thought, in your case, that's what it was supposed to be like. And when he realized that that was out there, oh, right. brutal. Yeah. And that that wasn't his crushing. reality, right? Crushing. Yeah. So yeah, it is crushing. It, those are moments. Those are moments. And so to, to say that any of this is easy, none of this is easy in fairness. Um, and there's moments that really bring you to a point of just um, heart, you know, heartache and heartbreak in many ways. Did Grace ever feel like she wanted to go talk to someone, even though things were going well because she viewed things differently? Is that something she? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Well, because because we actually, I should have mentioned this, we went through a collaborative divorce process. And as I mentioned, we had the child specialist that was introduced early on in the process. So at age seven, she went to see, his name is Mr. We referred to him as Mr. David. And Mr. David was a part of her life for about six months there. And then later on, um, about a year and a half or so later, she asked if she could go back and see Mr. David. And she asked for it. And I said, absolutely. I go, he is always there for you. And so she went back and spent some more sessions talking to him. And so I think understanding that there's people that um, are there for you that aren't your parents or aren't your friends or aunts and uncles that you can go and talk to, I think is really important for children to know. And um, I was thankful that A, we had found the right type of individual that could talk to Grace about what she was feeling, but also that she understood that she could go to him at any point and she asked to. Um, so yes, so yes to all of the above. And I felt it was a really important piece of the support we needed to give her at the age that we were going through this with her. Yeah, there's there's an interesting thing you you both have me thinking about right now. And we can maybe use this as a way to, to get toward wrapping up uh, that this whole discussion of what the conditions are that create a family. I, I think we we're at a point where 
that, like so many other ideas, is being referred to on a spectrum, right? And I have, you know, I've been married for many years and never been divorced. And my daughter is now off going into her junior year in in college. And she started using four or five years ago the term family of choice, which is, I know, a term that is used, uh, you know, in divorce circles and, and has been quite often. But I had never heard it in the context of her close friend group that she was using this term family of choice. And it hurt my feelings at the time. I was like, wait a minute, that's reserved for this guy. And uh, and and what was so interesting about that to me is that she and her peer cohort were able to compartmentalize these two ideas of family that meant something equally important and deep to them. And I thought that was that was actually really special and maybe yet another sign of like the adaptation that we're going through as parents and as kids, um, which is interesting to me. No, it's very interesting. No, I think it's very, I think if you look at the family structure evolution that's happening just in society as a whole right now, Pete, and then the the concept of family of choice, which is definitely coming, it's, it's, it's more prevalent as a, as a term. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's this gen, and I think this generation, your daughter, Grace, and, and kids that are growing up now, that will probably be more of, of a common, you know, yeah. uh, mental, mental model that you have your yes. family and then you, and then you choose. And I also think for, for kids these days, and I, I, we could probably all say this is a summer reflection, you choose your friends. Right. Yeah. You choose those people that you want to spend time with. You don't get to choose your family, and and but hopefully you are happy with that family. Yeah. That is, I, I guess you hope to of. choose to stay with them. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but, to no. To, to that point, though. Yeah. Yeah. All the parents that I talk to, I say, play the long game. When you're going to trial over a parenting plan, and your kid is twelve, we're really arguing over six years. What about when they're yeah. twenty-two and thirty-two? What are they going to think about this moment? Right. What are they going to think about this litigation? What are they going to, how is that going to impact your relationship? Because ultimately, we were laughing about this at lunch because the, the whole team had lunch together. When you're not paying the bill anymore for them, you're going to find out whether they really want to hang out with you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, well, I'll tell you, Sarah, uh, you're a champ. Thanks for uh, sitting through this with the <laughs> likes of us. Uh, <laughs> we're really honored to have you here. In in I think what might be the cruelest statement of irony on the whole show, if I Google Sarah Armstrong, you're not first. There's no way to put your thumb on the scale <laughs> a little bit. At Google, like, what is happening here? What is going on right now? If you don't have this influence, Sarah Armstrong, what do you have? I don't want to name. I, I don't want to name a Google competitor, but maybe we should try them as the search engine. <laughs> See where influence the good news really is, lies. I love that. I, I mean, that, that is hysterical. I, in fairness, I don't Google myself often, so I haven't actually checked where I'm coming up on the search the search results. Um, it's not something I do, but well, that um, means no, you do I, have to actually tell us where to find you. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So um, I have a website um, that's um, The Mom's Guide to a Good Divorce, but you can get to it easily at gooddivorce.guide, actually. And then um, you can reach me at sarah at gooddivorce.com. Um, 
com and I think the, the the thing to acknowledge is my book is out on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It is available in paperback. It's available as an um, iBook, ebook, and also it's available in on Audible. I went into the studio um, actually during the pandemic. You and read it? Yes, oh. I did. I did, and actually, it was That's an amazing work. experience. Yeah, it's hard. It's very hard, hard work. work. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. Hard work to hear yourself, by the yeah. way, and and. Uh, yeah, so there's amazing things when you read out loud and realize how you sound and how that all comes together. But the reason I've done the three versions is I think women and parents that are going through this may not be comfortable having the book on their bedside table. And if they want to have it, you know, on a on an iPad or if they want to listen to it on <laughs> but, a long walk. You, you mean there's Smart. a problem when your husband thinks you're happily married and that book is at your bedside <laughs> table? <laughs> Come on. Books you don't want to see, like, you know, guides to yeah. better sex and guides yeah. to a good divorce. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I had a good friend who wanted to read it and she tore the front cover off. <laughs> and not because she was looking at divorce. She just wanted to read my book in support of me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I would have sent you the ebook. So no, but it is out there. And I just hope that it can help as many women and, and individuals as popular are going through divorce because it is something that is one of the most challenging things you can do in life. Um, and, and it is hard, um, but there's a way to go through it that I think can help um, to actually hopefully end up in a much better place for everyone involved. And, and there's happiness after divorce um, if you approach in a certain way. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. All the links will be in the show notes. Thank you so much, Sarah. And uh, thank you. Uh, it, it's been a real treat on behalf of Sarah Armstrong, author of The Mom's Guide to Good Divorce, and on behalf of Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next week right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.